Welcome back to Brooklands and this edition of The Track. My name's Tim Morris. Brooklands got off to a, a brilliant start with a fantastic New Year's Day meet where over 5,000 people and hundreds of classic cars all descended on the museum despite uh, what was a bit of a threatening uh, weather forecast, though that didn't actually rain until uh, gone four o'clock. It was a great day and uh, we're certainly looking forward to some more of those in the year to come. Uh, the next one up on the calendar is the VSCC driving test, which is on the 29th of January. Uh, then there's a little gap until the end of March when the season begins uh, in earnest with the ever-popular Mini Day. The Brooklyn's Members uh, Talks series also got underway in January uh, with a fantastic talk by uh, the racing driver Mike Wilds. Now Mike uh, describes himself as a versatile racing driver uh, due to the, the large amount of series that he's actually raced in. He's raced in uh, Formula 1, Formula 3, Formula 5000, sports cars, touring cars, Le Mans, GT and so on. Uh, many different series including uh, more recent classic car series as well and uh, in, in the talk in January he was uh, discussing nearly 60 years of motor racing and uh, today we'll present uh, a couple of clips from that event where uh, he talks about a couple of uh, scrapes that he got into and also his Formula 5000 uh, career leading to the race of champions and his F1 debut at Watkins Glen over to Mike. The first race of my second season at Brands Hatch was when I really found out that motor racing could be dangerous and it could hurt a little bit. We weren't wearing suit belts in those days, so I went to the first round of the 1172 Championship at Brands Hatch and during the race I was trying to get the lead off a man called... Uh, Oh, what was his name? I've forgotten it. He was driving a Regio anyway, and it was a beautiful little 1172 car, and uh, he spun. So I thought, great, I've got the lead. So did I lift off? Not a jot. Thinking that he would spin the car to the infield, he didn't. He held the slide and he came backwards, and I tried to miss him and went on to the muddy grass on the outside of the circuit, and then hit that muddy bank on the outside because I couldn't get the car stopped from going down the ditch on uh, the bottom of Paddock Hill. That very nicely broke my nose and hit me, I hit it so hard uh, I didn't wake up till the following weekend. Um, from there the car started to turn over and at this point it snapped my pelvis in two. I had a couple of broken arms, and by the time it got to here, I was in a pretty bad way. But luckily, I was in the land of Nod. I didn't know anything about it, which was great. So, this was a huge setback for me because, well, and my family, <laughs> poor dad and mum, had to try and help me get this sorted out. And the 750 Motor Club were great because you make friends, they all try and help. And one guy, Tiny Littler, who was racing um, in Formula Libra in a ex-John Love Cooper, had a coach builder's 
place in South London, and he took the chassis. And when I f eventually woke up, my father, I was in West Hill Hospital in Dartford for a long time. Uh, he used to tow the car in various stages of rebuild and park it in a particular place in the car parks. I was on the first floor ward. I could see how he was getting on rebuilding my car with the help of all these guys. It was absolutely wonderful because stupidly all I wanted to do was get back in the car and go racing again. Note the lovely marshals with their beautiful fluorescent gear and don't, don't, uh, don't move the poor patient in case he'd broken his neck. They just hoiked me out and took me off to the hospital, which was great. So I was back in the mode of begging, begging for drives. I'd drive anything. Just please let me go motor racing. So doing this, I found out that motor racing can be even more dangerous. It could possibly even try to kill you. So I scrounged a drive in something called a Lola T280, which was an inter-series car. It had the lovely Cosworth V8 3D DFE engine in the back with different cams to, for sports car racing. But it was still very quick, and uh, I was leading a, a, a race a Thunder Sports race at Donington Park. And my dear friend Ray Malloch uh, was running the car and he said, um, well, I said I could smell petrol. I was getting strapped in to do the start of the race. I said, strong smell of petrol, Ray. Yes, he said, not to worry. He's, when the tank's full, because it was a long race, the tanks are full. And he said, if you look over here, the plate, there are plates on the top of the uh, fuel system which have rubber gaskets, and it's where they put the bag tanks in, and then they, it's all bolted up and everything's wonderful. But I could see fuel seeping from the gasket on one of the tanks, because you're sitting in tanks both sides of you. And he said, uh, the car only does four, four miles to the gallon, do two laps and that won't be a problem anymore. So I go away from the start, I'm leading the race, and everything's great. I've got a, a man in a Can-Am car who's giving me a tough time from behind, and this smell of petrol is getting stronger. Ray said it would be all right, everything's fine. The smell is getting stronger and stronger, and on the 13th lap, it went bang. It had a fuel leak, but not the one Ray was talking about. Uh, there happened, somehow, one of the bag tanks had got a nick in it, a split, and was leaking fuel outside of the bag tank into the monocoque. And eventually, when I put the brakes on for Redgate Corner, obviously the brakes get very hot, they glow. Some of the fuel hit the left front brake, came back into the tank and exploded. At this point, I'm probably doing 130, 140 miles an hour, thinking, I have a problem. <laughs> because I'm not going to get out now. I have to slow this car down. It's really weird what goes through your mind when you think you're going to die. And I honestly, this is the only time I've ever thought I would die in a racing car. Um, the biggest thing that came across here for me were just three words, don't breathe in.
and I just didn't take a breath. I didn't do it. The pain of the fire, the heat, I can't tell you how painful it was. Uh, but I had to get it slowed down to get away from it, which meant I was in here. Again, I was still, if you breathe in, you're going to scorch your lungs and it's going to kill you. So I didn't, I tried not to breathe, try not to breathe, but get away from it. And everything I was touching to get away from it was melting. It was just a nightmare, absolute nightmare. And I thought, well, this is how somebody dies. But uh, I did get out and I rolled around. I felt I was totally on fire and the marshals came and sorted me out. Um, that was my helmet afterwards. Um, and it was the right decision because I'm still here. Um, it did put me in hospital for a while, but luckily I always wear good fireproof clothing, good underwear, very sexy long johns that are fireproof, polo neck shirt that's fireproof, balaclava. So the ambient heat and the external part of the uh, race suit caught fire, but it, the heat didn't go through so badly. I got one very deep burn here, which still has a scar, but it was really big. This was in 1980-something, and, and it's gradually got smaller and smaller. It's about the size of a 50p piece now. But the rest of it just killed the top layer of my skin, so the skin just fell off and carried on racing. But I will now never, ever drive a racing car if I can smell petrol. I've, I've given people their money back when they've paid me to drive a Nissan Group C in a historic race at uh, Donington. I could smell petrol. I said, I don't want to drive it. And I went home and I didn't drive it. It frightened me that much. And it frightens me so much that even at home, I do. <laughs> Just in case the lawnmower catches fire, um, I don't like taking any chances now when driving anything. <laughs>
talents of this band. I can't. <laughs> now, sadly, uh, we said goodbye to Nigel Brecknell, who was a museum volunteer who passed away uh, just before Christmas. Uh, Nigel joined the museum uh, way back in 1993 when he helped out the marketing department. Um, He would also take uh, a lot of photographs at the museum which became part of the museum's modern archive and uh, were often used in marketing materials. Um, Nigel worked with uh, Roger Ramage at the time. It's Roger that uh, instigated the series of Brooklyn's All-Stars traditional jazz sessions. And Nigel was a a big fan of those as well and would often uh, photograph the sessions taking place. Uh, One of the greatest sessions that we ever did, I think, was back in 2013 when the uh, jazz legend Chris Barber and several members of his band uh, joined us in the members' bar. And that was Chris playing uh, all of me now back to mike who who talks us through his formula 5000 career and uh, his first f1 appearance at watkins Glen. i was now desperately keen to progress towards my ultimate goal which had to be to race in formula one so the natural progression from Formula 3 to Formula 1 was to do Formula 3, Formula 2 and Formula 1. Formula 2 was brilliant because a lot of the Grand Prix drivers were racing in Formula 2 as well as Formula 1. So that was my uh, ambition. It didn't quite go that way because this is myself, still with my beard, and my dear friend Colin Bennett, um, the sponsors we had at the time called Dempster Developments, who were providing the running costs for Jack Cavill's uh, Ensign, uh, I said I did a budget for Formula 2, but most of the races were in Europe. And they said, no, we, we want to race in the UK mostly. So it was decided that we would uh, race in Formula 5000. So you had a five-liter stock block Chevrolet, modified engine, and uh, the team bought a Formula One, a new Formula One March 741 chassis, and Colin and I engineered a Chevrolet V8 uh, into the back of it. Not particularly easy, and Sadly, not particularly successful initially. It was a brute of a car. Uh, I'd raced Formula 3 with 120, 130 brake horsepower. Very light, very nimble. And here I was with a cast iron block Chevrolet 500 horsepower engine in the back of a single seater. Christ, it was good. It was so good. I can't tell you how much I love power in racing cars. And this was my first taste of driving something where there was something in Formula One when I was working at Firestone that drivers used to talk about tyre vibration. I don't know if you've ever heard about it, but we were running 20, 21-inch wide rear tyres to get the grip. The aero wasn't particularly good, so we were looking to get a lot of grip out of the tyres. The uh, 
extra power you have with these very, very wide tires, you could squeeze the power on in the middle of a corner. The car would start to spin its wheels under power, but it was also sliding laterally. So you were getting into an oversteer situation with the wheels spinning one way and the tires sliding the other. And it set up a wave across the top of the tread. And this wave was, was absolutely fantastic because you could, you don't want to slide too much because you're wasting time and you want to get the power on to fire yourself out to the next corner. So you could gauge the amount of vibration that gave you the best traction and to get the speed out of the corner. And it was, I'd never felt it before. As soon as I drove this 5000 car, it hurt your chest. The vibration hurt your chest. The more you pushed the throttle down, it was, it was very low frequency vibration and you couldn't see the instruments. And I was so chuffed to get it because all these Formula One drivers have been telling me about it and now I was actually getting this feeling. So Formula 5000 was a really good stepping stone to Formula One, but it wasn't really recognized as such at the time. This is me testing the car once we finished building it at Silverstone. Um, it really was a mighty car, the, by far the fastest thing I'd ever driven at the time. And my first race was at the Race of Champions meeting at Brands Hatch in 1974. We had a 5,000 race on the Saturday, and then the top five, I think, who finished in that 5,000 race were offered a place on the grid for the uh, race of champions on the Sunday. Well, I qualified 10th or 11th, hadn't done very well. But in the race, I really started, because they were quite long races, I really started to get in the car. And I was running fourth, and I caught one of my heroes, a man called Brian Redman, who was running third. And uh, in fact, sorry, he was running second. I overtook Ian Ashley to get third and I caught Brian Redman. I thought, I can't believe this. There's Brian Redman in a beautiful Lola T332. Um, and being inexperienced, I was lunging him down into the corners and overtaking him, and he'd just drive past me on the way out of the corner and wave and serenely carry on while I was driving my backside off, making every mistake under the sun. But it was a great learning curve for me. And by the end of the race, I'd beaten Brian and come second to Peter Gethin, uh, who was in a work Chevron B24, which meant I was going to get a race in the race of champions on the Sunday. So I'd just won £4,000 for coming second in this European championship round and went into the race of champions on the Sunday, which if some of the older menders might remember it was a tremendously wet race and Jackie X got a bit of fame by driving around the outside I think it was Nicky Lauder in the Ferrari he drove round him, round paddock in the wet to take the lead it was um, horrendous my race didn't last very long I sadly um, went round the outside of Teddy Pellette at the start at Druids in the wet. He spun, hit me, put me in the wall, and the repairs cost me about £4,010, so I didn't make <laughs> much profit that weekend.
But things did get better. Um, that's me. I put the car on pole position at Brands Hatch for another round of 5,000. So I'm in front of all the people I thought I shouldn't be. Peter Gethin, David Hobbs, Brian Redmond, Teddy Pillett. And there's me leaving. I love leaving black lines. Used to, we used to do the start in second gear. So you'd pop the old girl in second gear, give it about 7,000 revs, and just nicely drop the clutch. And you could just leave black lines all the way up towards Paddock Bend. It was lovely. So I led that race for a while. And I think this is probably one of the best races I ever drove, because I finished sixth, because I led the race for half of it. Um, and then started to lose the front brakes. So I only had rear brakes. The pedal was going almost to the floor. And then the throttle stuck wide open. And so in the end, I was driving with no brakes, a throttle that was stuck wide open. So I was driving it on the kill switch on the steering wheel. And I still finished sixth because I was leading the European Championship at this stage. Uh, so I, I reckon it was one of my best ever drives, even though I didn't get a result. I then had a massive crash at Thruxton in the Formula 5000. Um, they weren't particularly safe cars and I didn't let go of the steering wheel quick enough in the accident and it snapped my, my left wrist. And that week I'd been offered uh, a works drive in the Formula 1 March. Uh, Hans Stuck had broken his wrist at Monaco the week before and so I was offered the replacement. Uh, to be a replacement driver. Sadly, I, I'd broken my wrist as well the week, so I, I couldn't do it. But Mo Nunn came up and said, well, would you like to drive the Ensign in the Italian Grand Prix? Um, Vern Schupen had left the team, so I went and drove it. Sadly, the car really wasn't very good. Um, the basic car was fine, but it had a problem with the fuel system. Every time I loaded the car to the left, it dropped fuel pressure. And therefore, the engine uh, lost power. And I didn't qualify. The man doing the tire temperatures is a man called Nigel Bennett, who went on to work with Lotus, uh, Lola, Lotus, and ended up uh, being chief designer for Penske. He designed a lot of the good um, indie cars that won uh, in the USA. So Nigel was a good mate. We actually owned a boat together for a number of years. Um, so I didn't qualify there. I didn't qualify in Austria, in Canada. And uh, I was getting really fed up. And I said to, to Mo, really, it's pointless to do this. It was so competitive. There were 30, 32 cars for 25 places on the grid. So we went to America after Canada. And there was a week where Mo, bless his heart, redesigned the whole fuel system of the car. And this is me going out of the pit lane at Watkins Glen. It's very strange. Your mind plays games with you. I was sitting in the pit lane, and I had one set of good tyres left. I, the team, we didn't get qualifying tyres, so my back was to the wall anyway, so I had to try and qualify on race tyres. And I suddenly realised I was sitting in the car, looking down towards the first right-hander at Watkins Glen, and there was a beautiful grandstand on the left, and I was thinking to myself, 
be nice to watch the race from there. And I'd got in this mindset that I wasn't going to be in this motor race uh, because of the previous uh, non-qualification. And I can tell you, when I drove that car out of that pit lane, I have never, ever been so determined to, to get on the grid in my life. Mo had cured this fuel pressure problem, and these are the practice times and the grid for that race. And I was never last, never last in any of the practice sessions. And I actually managed to do a time that got me on the grid. I can't tell you what that meant to me. To be sitting with the Nicky Lauders of this world, the James Hunts, the Fittipaldis, Denny Holm, Jacques Lafitte, all these, all my heroes, especially Ronnie Peterson, who I admired greatly. He was just uh, one place in front of me on the grid. I was sitting on the grid looking at Ronnie Peterson in a JPS Lotus 72. It was surreal, absolutely surreal. So when the man lifted the flag to start the race, I was really up for it. And the engine stopped. <laughs> Just as he dropped the flag, it, it was absolutely Murphy's law. I lost fuel pressure. The pressure relief valve on the, it ran a Cosworth uh, DFV three litre engine and the pressure relief valve on the engine failed. The engine would run as long as I hardly touched the throttle. If I touched the throttle, the pressure just went down to zero. So I think I, they lapped me five or six times before I managed to get the car into the pit lane. I was determined to get it to the pit lane and do a Grand Prix. It took forever to find a spare pressure relief valve. Monan fitted it and I went out I'd lost nine laps. So I wouldn't be classified, but he said, just go out, get the experience. And I had a wonderful time, and I had a lovely dice with a wonderful man called Chris Amon, who was driving for BRM. Brooklyn's News. We've been uh, reporting for several uh, editions of the track now on the clubhouse renovations and uh, we're delighted that these are now almost complete. Uh, All the scaffolding has been removed from the clubhouse itself and uh, we're just waiting for some parts for the uh, lift to turn up so that that can be installed and uh, give disabled access to the first floor of the clubhouse. The museum can then return to its uh, master plan, uh, which will ensure the future of the museum uh, for years to come. Events-wise, we have the driving test on the 29th of January. Uh, Always a great day with the VSCC throwing their vintage uh, machinery around. And uh, the members will have a talk on the uh, V-Bombers. Uh, on the 16th of February. Uh, That is actually sold out for people in the room, but live stream tickets are still available and you can uh, view it there. Uh, Half term comes up unbelievably in February and uh, the half term activities include the search for speed. That's from the 11th to 19th. And then uh, we're back to the uh, normal events in March the 26th and it's mini day 
always a fantastic event at the museum. Plenty more dates for your diary can be found on the museum website at brookensmuseum.com and you can also become a member on that website and enjoy free entry to the museum most of the year round. Thanks for listening.